Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Jackie Cation, who is a comedian in America. We talked about civil war. We talked about live comedy and Twitch, as well as uh, how you perform differently online to how you perform live. We talked about logic and user interface, empathy. Um, I'm sort of working up a little bit of a critique, maybe a loving critique of the intellectual dark web or the rationalist, aggressively rationalist person who is uh, sort of to to tangent a bit off this. I'm trying to figure it out. And we spoke about that. uh, I spoke about it with Jackie a little bit. uh, There's a certain type of person whom I often agree with, but I find there's something troubling about the way that they operate. And it's a person who really wants a rational view of the world. Uh, They want logic and rationality to be the preeminent focus of thought and intellectual conversation. And it is so it should be to a certain extent. But what I what I could feel, there's something about it that feels a little bit off, that there's something missing from that perspective of the world, some empathy or heart or perspective that the desire to um, avoid all logical fallacies can lead you to ignore things that are self-evident but are difficult to measure and to quantify. It leads to a focus on the quantifiable uh, at the cost of things that are common sense, which is not to say that they're purely intuitive but there's something about them that's difficult to measure and they get factored out of these equations. Anyway, we talked about that um, and I'm still trying to figure it out and I'm hoping, you know, next show that I do, I'll I'll be able to give you a a reasoned critique of that approach to life because I do think it is predominantly positive and useful, but it does have these big missing chunks that make it potentially dangerous. Uh, Anyway, that that ramble aside, we talked about... uh, Dating and Bridgerton, online dating and the the valorization of female desire. I just I really enjoyed this conversation with Jackie. She's a brilliant person and I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. That said, I should do a few plugs before I let you get on with listening to it. First of all, Patreon supporters, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I say this every week. I mean it every week and I mean it more every week. I am... A comedian, I am an artist, and this model has made it possible for me to do the kind of art that I am interested in doing or that I find interesting, and I hope you find interesting too. If you're listening to this, I assume you find it interesting. Um, it, It is an incredible artistic freedom. You are all little mini Medici's, and you make this possible in a way that it is not possible to do stuff if you're trying to be picked up by a mainstream distributor. It's not possible to do things nowadays anymore unless you have proof of concept and something is undeniably uh, popular. And popular is one metric for good or interesting, but I don't think it ought to be the only metric for good or interesting because otherwise we miss out on some really interesting stuff. And the Internet, the modern age, has allowed us these new models of distribution and these new models of engagement and these new models of support for artists. So 
Thank you to everybody who subscribes on the Patreon. Thank you to everyone who subscribes at the level that lets me talk to you every week on my uh, weekly Tuesday tea salons. I do them in different time zones, Australia, UK, America, so that everyone has an opportunity to uh, join the conversation. Uh, the conversation. Remember when that was the big thing, early 2000s? Join the conversation. Anyway, um, so thank you, Patreon people. There will be a new Bugle show spin-off launching in February, which is called The Gargle. Um, thank you, Ben Wren, my brilliant, brilliant, brilliant editor who makes uh, makes the audio quality of this less incredibly distressingly um, construction work next door based. Thank you for making this listenable. And I think that's all the things that I wanted to plug. The last post is now monthly uh, and we'll figure out other things to do with the last post. So stay subscribed there if you're a last post listener. Savage is available on Amazon Prime. The trilogy is available, as always, as are many of my other pieces of work, alicefraser.com or patreon.com slash alicefraser are the places to find all of those things or follow me on Twitter at at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E on Instagram as well. That's the same thing. I don't really use Facebook. I kind of, you know, let's not get into that. I will let you get on with listening to this show. Uh, I loved it. Please listen and enjoy with Alice with Jackie Cation. I'll talk with you next week. Who are you and what are you drinking? Uh, I'm Jackie Cation and I was I was drinking tea, but now I'm drinking coffee in my Star Wars cup that someone gave me. I don't it says pew pew. Pew 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 pew. <laughs> and uh, it's uh yeah. I'm having a little coffee. What are you having? Uh, I'm having a tea. I don't drink coffee because it makes me too jittery. Mm. Uh, but I'm I'm I admire someone who can go from tea to coffee. That's that feels bold to me somehow. Sure. The mix well, of the two. I I have a drinking problem, uh, so I will drink a lot of beverages in a row, <laughs> all different kinds. So I just need there to be liquids. I admire that. I admire that openness. Hmm. <laughs> So you must be the most hydrated of all my guests so far. Pretty hydrated. I feel it. I feel it. it's very soft skin. It's uh, not very dry at all. So it's very nice. That's <laughs> what they say about Jackie, the, the <laughs> subtlest comedian. Yes, yes. They always say that about me. Look at all that skin. <laughs> so uh, what have you been up to and what have you been wrestling with? Like, I understand that there's massive political stuff happening in your country. Uh, I am living through, so so far, living through what could only be termed, in my opinion, as the laziest civil war I've ever been witness to, uh, because there's a lot of half-assedness going. There doesn't seem to be anybody lining up and going pew, 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 pew. Uh, but there is, uh, of course, a plethora of guns in the United States. So what I'm wrestling with day to day, I would say, is just living in that sort of, in the moment. Like, where are my feet? What can I do? I'm, I'm hunkered down. I've been in, I've been in quarantine since the middle of March, you know, just uh, because I live in Los Angeles, which is a giant Petri dish of, yeah. of idiots and non-idiots. And uh, the idiots keep, we're, we've got a lot of dead people <laughs> in the United States right now. I don't know if you're familiar with the death rate, but it's uh, pretty grim. Yes, yes. I feel extremely lucky to be uh, here in Australia where we have very few cases um, and we can talk about the politics of that all day. But one of the things that struck me very much in America is how you have 
simultaneously, it's a bit like Japan, uh, in that you have simultaneously the most one thing and the most other thing, the most of one thing and the most of the opposite, but very in close proximity. So you have the like the most intellectual people and then the most anti-intellectual people. <laughs> right. It's almost like humanity. Uh, you know. You know. It's all, it's it's an interesting. It's it does. It does lend itself to the American ideal, the fact that morons and uh, the intelligentsia can be right next to each other. So there's some hope in that, is that maybe it'll bleed off into the dum-dums and maybe it'll take the rest of us off of our high horse. I consider myself part of the intelligentsia. Thank you very much. I assume that when we're all lined up against the wall to be shot, it'll either because I'm a middle-aged white woman or because I'm intelligentsia. I read a canticle for Leibowitz. I know what's happening. Anyway. <laughs> you're meant to be, uh, you're meant to be wearing the glasses to shoot me, not me wearing glasses to be shot. Right. Uh, is that it? Uh, <laughs> So I assume being locked down, you've been consuming uh, much media or creating much media? I have uh, been doing both of that. Um, here's the thing is that every time it looks like there's a window of opportunity, I do stand up, obviously, right? I'm a stand up mm -hmm. comic. I work on the road. I have not been on the road since March 14th. That's a long time. Yeah. Uh, around more March 16th, I started doing zoom shows and Twitch shows and Facebook shows and Instagram shows and anything. There was something called, uh, spatial art or whatever it was. Like literally there's apps popping up all over the place and comics are like, could we turn it into a, a performance space? Anyway, so that's what we've been doing. And so I've been doing a lot of shows online Aren't they like a nightmare? Like, aren't they literally exactly like a nightmare that you have about doing comedy into a bright light where you can't hear anyone laughing? Like, they're great and they're fantastic, but they're also exactly like a nightmare I have. <laughs> oh, fair enough. It's it's interesting because there was a show that a guy named, not Ian Carmel, it was Ian Abramson. Ian Abramson made a show in Los Angeles about a year and a half, two years ago, and it was called Seven Minutes in Purgatory. And genuinely, you would be doing stand-up comedy into a camera for seven minutes. It was then being broadcast to another room with an audience who was laughing. You could not hear them. And it was horrible. It was like doing a Twitch show where not even the host was breathing. So, like, literally, you were the only one in the room. And the first time I did it, I did – wait, did I do it twice or did I just – imagine the second time because it was a nightmare it was literally i hated it because it was an interesting psychological study because the idea was is that i couldn't hear anybody so i thought oh well i'll just run lines i'll just do my set the stuff i need to work on and by like the second or third minute you know like if there wasn't real beads of sweat there were metaphorical beads of sweat and i just i literally just turned and went to the vault I was yep, like, yes, I'm... yes, yes. It is impossible to do new stuff. It's very hard to do. It's, it would, it's a learned, I just wrote, I've, you know, obviously in the last nine months, 10 months, I've written uh, quarantine jokes and COVID jokes and uh, cops murder people joke. I mean, I've written some news, some jokes about that, but not like regular standup. Like my regular standup is usually not political. It's usually socio-political at, at, at most and um yeah likewise 
if I'm not doing satire for a satire show, it's yeah. It's just, it's sort of the big picture, you know, and, mm. and I just, I have two do bits and it took nine months of doing stand-up comedy to get used to Zoom shows, to get used to online shows. It's, but I will say this is the people who complain and say that they'd never do them because it's not real stand-up. Re- I mean, I'm fine. Please don't do them. I don't care. It actually genuinely doesn't affect me though. Of course I want to see comics and hang out with them and see what they're working on, but it's not real comedy. Have you ever done a one-nighter in the middle of like Kalgoorlie? <laughs> Have you been up yes. to like some mining town outside of Canberra? Yeah, you're just like, yes. yeah, that's a shit show. It arguably also not real comedy, but necessary if you want to get paid. Necessary if people want to be entertained and all of the things, right? Yes, well, there's ways that I think have emerged over this period of time in this new genre of whatever it is, comedy parallel, universe comedy, uh, you know, where things have come out, you know, it's become so obvious that comedy is not a one-way street, that it's a conversation. And so often it'll work better if if the host is in the room with you or if you have someone to bounce off or if you're, if you're just talking conversationally rather than trying to do punchlines because there's nothing more heartbreaking than doing a punchline and and waiting for the beat response you know yeah the and Zoom getting shows, nothing yeah the the internet shows are you ever do like a big theater where if the room is big enough you have to wait you do the yes. setup and you have to wait till it everyone hears it it has to hit yep. the back wall roll back everyone's on the same page here's the punchline wait for it to hit the back wall <laughs> and so it changes the timing a little bit which is yes. exactly what zoom was i've done a couple of live shows outdoors since doing zoom shows and it's completely fucked with my with my timing and so when i go back on the road to do live in person brick and mortar shows it's going to take me a couple of weeks it's going to be, yeah. it's going to be another, I mean, the jokes, will, the jokes are good. I mean, I could tell that they work because I've been doing standup for 1000 years and I could tell that they're real, but I can't, I can't, how to reach the people is, is the muscle mm-hmm. memory that I'm going to have to work on when I get back out. Yeah. Those, those fine tuning things of bringing an extra little laugh out of in the middle of a line or making sure that it all sort of the rhythm yeah. is right. Yeah, that they've yeah. heard the damn thing correctly. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm interested to see how it will change live performance, um, the, like long form Twitch shows, because a lot of comedians that I know who've who've transitioned to online shows are doing these like four hour long Twitch what are shows. They? Were yeah. just them for four hours or them and friends? Yeah, so they're playing a game or they're doing a thing or they're, you know, the, oh. the, the Twitch thing. Oh, the Twitch thing, But a lot thing. of people yeah. are, are doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering whether that will change the way they are on stage, these sort of, where it's oh, much more about being personable than it is about being hilarious, where, the, where it's <sighs> about maintaining attention rather than, you know, punching people in the face. Oh, my God. The line, it's much more about being personable than being hilarious strikes me to my heart because I have to yeah. say correct. <laughs> I'm like, please, there's enough personable. I swear to God, a lot of people can do personable. Please write a fucking joke. And, you know, but there, there are great comics who are doing Twitch, right? I mean, I never thought that, you know, I had 
somebody tweeted like a three weeks ago or whatever. They said, you know, I quit playing video games so that I could work on my stand-up. Now I have to restart playing video games so I can work on my stand-up. And um, <laughs> I have a Twitch channel. I do nothing with it because I haven't figured out. And I have a PS4 and I, have, I just got a Switch for Christmas. And I'm like, I don't so I'm going to invite people to watch me not know how to do shit. This seems weird. And, and I, you know, I was on a show where I played apex legends with like fancy people on Twitch <laughs> and that was a first person shooter. And it was, I, I just, I just want to do stand up. I find video games very stressful because I feel way too guilty when my character dies. I feel like my <laughs> lack of skill. Kill like I just, I, yeah, yeah, I feel I, I spend the whole time apologizing uh, to the creatures. Wow. But yeah, I yeah, I don't I don't know what it's going to do uh, to comedy in the same way as you know the Australian festival circuit shapes the way that comedy works there everyone works towards an hour very quickly and then they try and turn over an hour a year whereas in America because you've got a much bigger circuit you tend to have shorter slots that you work for longer uh, although that's shifting now with Netflix and streaming services and the, the content churn I think you are now yeah. moving slightly more towards the festival model of yeah. turning over more shows which naturally lends itself more towards narrative shows uh, because they're more memorable and because they're sort of self-contained and because you have more structure in them and they work as a as a unit rather than little it's modular to, bits. It, it's easier to mine stuff from your family too. Like you can turn over stuff a little bit faster if you go, all right, what happened between 10 and 15? That's what I'm going to do this year. I'm going to do a story about when I wanted a dog, wasn't allowed to get one. How about that? And uh, or whatever it is. And but my cleaned stand, out my attic, all the memories, all the memories. I I'm mine. My standup has always been kind of storytelling. I kind of lucked mm -hmm. into my standup being the kind of standup that became very popular in the late nineties in the United States, which was this alt comedy, which was more about storytelling and more about a narrative. And people were, and I had learned in the first 10, 12 years of doing standup that I needed to talk really fast because my, my jokes were all stories. And I'm like, get all the beats out, get all the beat punchline, get all the beats out, get all the beats out punchline. So when I went over to alt, you know, doing more alt rooms, um, I could slow down, had a hard time slowing down and I've been working on it since 1999. But, uh, the, the thing is, is, is these are all, these are all different skills where you want to play every room, right? I want to be able to play shitty yes, one-nighters yes, yes. in North Dakota and Carnegie Hall and, yes the big good clubs, you know, like Acme in Minneapolis and stuff like the, like I did a show once in Sydney, Australia. Yes. And I think it was the word friendly was involved. Do you know that room? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, it would be a uh, friend in hand. Friend in uh, hand. Yeah. And it was, I went to Sydney for a friend's, it was a destination wedding. Uh, Cause they were, uh, the bride was from Sydney. Uh, my buddy is a comic and, um, and so we went to Sydney for the, my husband and I went and, I was like, I'm going to see if I could pick up a set because I hadn't done stand-up in Australia since 2005. And I think they got married in like 2012. And I think that's what it was. Anyway, but um, 
it had been a while. And I was like, I need, I want to go do stand-up in Australia. And so the only set I could get was at the a friend in hand the night of the wedding, Alice. <laughs> and so I call my buddy, Greg, and I'm like, hey, so it's an afternoon wedding, right? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And I said, and then we're going to have dinner. He goes, uh-huh. And I said, what time do you think? think dinner will be over like six or seven and he goes yeah and i said then there's just a party he said yeah we're thinking about maybe going to the bars or something and i said okay so no more reception stuff like it's not gonna be a dance you guys are just gonna go to a bar or something he goes yeah yeah just kind of the and i said would it be how would would you be mad if i had picked up a set and he goes the night of and i go yeah and he goes and he's a comic so he goes Oh my God, do it. His wife, on the other hand, I don't know how Kylie responded. Uh, I've yet to talk to her since. Um, <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit on Facebook. But it was so fun. My husband stayed at the wedding. Andy stayed at the wedding, had a wonderful yeah. time. Yeah. And well, I you're went, one flesh, you know, he's doing your part of that business. Ex ex exactly. We got each other's DNA when we married. So I was there <laughs> in spirit. And um, and it was great. And he's seen me do stand -up. It's fun. And so, but it was really, it was super fun. I really liked. And as always, I'm like, how do I get booked back there? Oh, well, I'd have to fly yeah. and I'm going to have to get You'd vaccinated. To yeah. Before I get, uh, before I go anywhere, I'm not, I made a decision like four days ago that, cause I had to cancel another four weeks of work it was supposed to start yeah. mid February to mid March. And I was going to record my album again. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to get the vaccination until March because of the uh, terrible way it's being sort of handled here. And as my brother who lives in my home state of Wisconsin, he's like, almost everybody's getting vaccinated here. And I said, yeah, there's 5 million people in Wisconsin. Yeah. There's 11 million people in my neighborhood. So it's going to take a second because comedians going to be last. It's not, yes. it's not early. We're not early. So I, you know, this, this is an interesting thing, just to kind of tangent uh, away for a second. The idea that the arts is unnecessary, I always find super interesting. And this is kind of maybe a hobby horse of mine, that the arts, you know, kind of a pyramid of luxuries. The arts is the last one on and the first one off. Mm -hmm. It's offensive. At, yes. It's well, genuinely my offensive. Grandmother, yes. My grandmother was in the resistance in World War II. She was in the Hungarian Jewish oh, wow. resistance. And Good she was at, a, at one point in the war, she, uh, as a Jewish lady, was hiding in a basement with five of her friends and these five friends got through the war together. And they would be in this basement for days at a time. It was at the point where it was safer for them to go out to get food when the bombs were falling, when everyone else was in bomb shelters wow. than it was for them to go out in the normal time and they would put on plays for each other and read poetry and do shadow puppets and do comedy and that is you know that's the last thing they would lose when yeah. everything else was really stressful yeah so I find it yeah I find it uh, sort of not not that the comedians should be getting the vaccine before nurses or anything right, but right. just the idea that we have that we are useless yeah, I think is not is not correct. I have a comparable story to your Hungarian grandmother hiding from the Nazis. Not at all. Oh yeah. Uh, no, no. This is uh, <laughs> this is exactly the same situation, except for not at all. Think of okay. it as Cape Cod, nineteen eighty nine. The car breaks okay. down. I'm with one of the most boring men I've ever known in my life. Very handsome. 
very tall, strapping young man, very good looking. I thought about, um, I thought about, you know, I was like, I wonder if we would ever sleep together, you know, like you do. Sometimes you think about it when you, yeah. when you meet a meet You contemplate a person. the prospect. Yeah, you contemplate the prospect. And I thought, nope, no, he's just, he would keep talking. And then, um, but the thing <laughs> is, is uh, he was very strong and he took me sailing and I had always wanted to go sailing and he had, um, anyway, so we're driving back in his like 19th, it was like a vintage, he was so proud of it, except for it broke down. And, uh, and it was a Sunday. And so we were trying to get help and Cape Cod is very loosely populated. And, um, so <laughs> we, yeah. so he, and he, he, I don't know, I think he walked to a phone booth and called and finally got someone, but it was going to be a couple of hours. And so we were sitting there and he started getting irritated. And so I started trying to entertain him. And then at one point he became irritated that I tried to start to entertain him. And I had to explain to him that we had to entertain each other or we would kill each other. And cause it was just, we just had the, each other for this hour and a half or whatever it was going to be. And so uh, it was kind of great. Actually, we get to learn what other people are good at. Turns out he could do handstands. Really? That's how, yeah. That's how that story ends, by the way. Now, now my best, my question here is, how long can he do handstands for? If you're trying to entertain each other for hours, how much do, how much juice is there in being able to do handstands? Handstands, that'll fill maybe 10, 15 minutes. And I'm okay with that because what it could do is he could do a handstand, at which point the other person goes, oh, my God, you could do a handstand. And then uh, there's, <laughs> there's some breathing, some heavy breathing while he gets his breath back. And then he handstands and walks on his hands. And you're like, holy uh -huh. shit, what can you do? And then it leads to other things. Escalating like, the narrative. Right. Cartwheels, other tumbling exercises. And then then, of course, the discussion about how I've never been uh, bendy at all. And I can't do any of that. But good times. So it, it really uh, we came out of it. Uh, we both lived. Uh, there was uh, we ended up being back in time for work the next morning. I, it is interesting entertaining one another and the like the obligation to entertain one another. It's one of the reasons why I've always thought it was stupid to say that men are naturally better at comedy than women. I've, you know, that's a Hitchens did that and a couple of right. other people. And it's a, it's a, it's a myth you hear a lot of, mm -hmm. and they cite testosterone. They say comedy is a form of aggression, deconstructive aggression, and therefore men are better at it. It's a, it's if it a were show off based. thing. Right. Yeah. If if it were fear or aggression based, women would be better at it just because we've dealt with with aggression and fear much more than men ever have. It's uh, such hack evolutionary biology. For example, yeah. you could do exactly the opposite. You could go, well, women are better at talking. That's a stereotype. Mm -hmm. uh, women are better at communicating. Women are better at noticing things. Women are better at being looked at. Women are better at lying. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? It's right. such a, a, a nonsensical thing. Yeah, we're uh, all just bags of meat. We're all just bags of meat with a brain on top. And if you could see the bag of meat first and then see the, oh, I would, I really want to sleep with that. I never want to sleep with that. Uh, that'd be great because I genuinely just want a cup of coffee or I'm looking for a job. We don't actually have to discuss what the, what the sausage casing looks like. We could just <laughs> discuss the brain that's on top of the pile of meat that I'm walking around on. Yes. That'd be ideal. Yeah, that would be that would be optimal. I always think mm. of myself 
or for a lot of my life, I've thought of myself as a sort of a floating brain in a, in a bubble or a, maybe like a Krang character. <laughs> and uh, it, it wasn't really until I started doing comedy that I realised that all this gendered stuff has a real impact on, you know, you can't just sort of pretend it isn't there because you will go in front of an audience and if they don't think you're funny, mm-hmm. then you they have may to figure out a way to... Yeah, you have to figure out a way. Right. Or, you know, uh, there was uh, there's a a bonus track, maybe half a track, whatever, on one of my earlier albums where I tell a story about how this kid came up to me after a show and he said, you were great. And he was so drunk. And uh, he goes, you were so great. Can I tell you something, though? Can I tell you something? And I said, (laughs) I'd like you to take a minute and think to yourself, is it kind what you're about to say? Is it is it? gonna be offensive at all and he goes maybe but i just gotta tell you and i was like oh here we go and he said when i saw your picture when we came in i was like oh shit it's a woman and uh, and then and then you were so great and usually i don't like women comics and i said and usually i don't like drunk idiots but look at you you seem nice (laughs) and uh i mean but it's it happens so often i don't know if you watch that friend lebowitz uh netflix series no, I've not seen it. It's fine. But whatever it is, she's 71 years old, right? And her entire life, her entire job has been to criticize things. So by definition, Fran Leibowitz is a pill. And uh, she's a piece <laughs> of work. <laughs> and it is often very funny. And sometimes you're like, ah, you didn't have to say that. Anyway, <laughs> but she usually never discusses sexism. Sometimes she talks about uh, queer and lesbian rights, right? And and gay rights and these things. But she rarely discusses uh, sexism as pertaining to just being a young woman. And in this, in this series, at one point, she was just like, it's, it's just so obvious what was happening. I just, and essentially you get the impression that she never discussed it because she thought everyone knew. But which is exactly how I was raised. Of Hmm. course, you know, but that's because I've been living in this fishbowl for a thousand years. I would assume everyone would know what the water's like. You've been to my castle. Nobody's been to my castle. And so I have to explain people the layout of my castle. And it's uh, and that's why that's why nobody like I have a hard time seeing to other people's fishbowls, too. Right. Like I have a hard time seeing uh, like problems of race. And problems of, you know, other people's experience where you're like, it takes some effort because of the distortion of the water. See, I'm taking the metaphor even further. Anyway, but um, I love an an overextended metaphor. It's (laughs) uh, a great pleasure. Uh, Yeah, I I think it's an interesting, that is an interesting metaphor to extend it even further. You know how goldfish grow to the size of the bowl you keep them in? Yeah. Yeah, they do. We like we need mm-hmm. to like open our fish bowls more yep. so that we yep. can become giant fucking monster goldfish. <laughs> I just did a Dork Forest, which is my podcast, The Dork Forest, where I interview people about what they love with a with a comic from Colorado who loves orca whales, which are not whales, they are the dolphin family. Anyway, she told the story of that movie Bug Dolphins. Orc- which one? Yeah, I think of them as thug dolphins. Thug dolphins. Oh, yeah, for sure. And But she told the story of the orca who was cast and played the part of Willie in Free Willie. And when they 
after the movie, there was a, a great amount of about that. You didn't free Willie. Uh, please free Willie. And so they spent like five or six years getting Willie um, out, you know, freeing Willie. Um, and so they did eventually. And he grew an extra foot. Because they they put him they they moved him from Mexico to Seattle and um and put him in a larger sort of a penned in part of the ocean instead of a tank and while in that penned in part of the ocean where he had a much bigger space he grew another foot babies do that too as well when they like go to daycare or something often they'll like shoot up oh right. Oh, that's Which I think is I mean, fascinating. This, that is fascinating. Weird, except Maybe. for their babies. Of course, they should. They should totally grow. That, that is their job. <laughs> that is their one job is to just Good keep getting job. bigger. Get a little to bit a bigger. certain point, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I, I've been, um, I've been thinking a lot recently in terms of what what I've been wrestling with, and I'm trying to figure out a way to critique a particular kind of person. That is something that I, okay, so you know the sort of Sam Harris intellectual dark web kind of guy? They're sort of an intellectual, uh, techie, rationalist guy. Ah. And they're all about, it's like about the stats and about the data and it's about being rational and you need to put aside your emotional uh, your emotional feelings about this and you need to look at the data. And they sort of, uh, you, I saw a lot of them around during the Black Lives Matter stuff, which is why when you, this is why I'm oh, thinking yeah. of it because you brought up the fishbowl thing and, and race. Mm-hmm. And they will say, for example, per interaction with the police, fewer black people get killed than white people. And then you say, well, okay. And they go, but you have to look at the statistics. So this isn't a racial thing. It's just about what neighbourhoods these people are in and if you're in a neighborhood you might be more likely to be picked on by the police and it's just coincidental that you're black and you go but uh, if you're they having just jump from dated they're they're pedants or what they are and they're pedantic and they're yeah anyway so they're maddening so you're trying to figure out how to talk to them well i'm trying to figure out how to give a um a solid and and reasonable critique of them because okay it appeals to me the idea that we can put our biases aside and have conversations about facts. And I, I find that appealing. And I probably agree with 80 or 90% of what they say. And then 10% is just so self-evidently smugly wrong that it makes me want to chew a doorpost yeah. or something. It's so infuriating, which is yeah. to say, you know, that it's this idea that it's not about race, it's about the neighbourhoods that are being policed and per interaction with the police, they're less likely to be, uh, you're less likely to be shot if you're black. And you go, but if there are, this is like COVID, right? If it, if, if it is a more infectious strain and more people are getting it, more people will die. If you mm-hmm. have more interactions with the police, mm-hmm. then more people will die. If, right. Even if each interaction per interaction is less deadly, Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you you can you can cut the numbers into whatever shape you want, uh, but more people of color are dying, and yes. um, so I don't know. Whatever, what when, when you know, I have a lot of friends who are very pedantic, and they and we're we're talking, we're not arguing, but we're usually not even arguing. We're just having a conversation where we're agreeing, we're agreeing, we're agreeing, and then for some reason. Because I'm matching the agreeing with with some people who are usually 
not my real friends, but my work friends. And uh, they'll take <laughs> some sort of weird turn. And because I'm matching them every time with another, you know, they're like, oh, I'm not winning this. I'm going to turn lateral so that uh, we can we can talk about something else that I think that you might not agree with, that then I can make a point and win this conversation. And whenever that lateral move has been made, and you have to know, I'm 55 years old. Uh, I don't care. Uh, I genuinely, I'm like, at, at that point is when I go, Okay, you you know what you just did, right? You just took a you took you just took a lateral move. We're not no longer discussing this. What do you want to discuss? And then I sort of I I I reinvent the conversation. I'm like, okay, we're done talking about this this situation. Let now you mm-hmm. want to talk about this situation, and you have some numbers that you would like to bring <laughs> to the table, and uh, you're like, okay, we could do that, but you realize that you're cutting that pie in a weird shape. It'd be like getting a pie and you're like, but it's chicken. And you're like, no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a sweet pie. It's an apple pie or it's a cherry pie. And you're like, no, 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 it's actually not even a pie at all. It's actually a chicken. Do you see, I'm going to make a chicken out of it. And then look, it looks like a chicken. And you're like, no, you cut a chicken shape out of an apple pie. You big weirdo. And the, I'm speaking in metaphor a lot tonight. I don't know. It is it is an analogy to speaking speaking of yes. metaphor in an analogy yes. <laughs> that I think is useful. Yes. Yes. Um, there is, uh, I think, if you look at the game, do you know the game, Neil Strauss's book, The Game? Yeah. I feel like that is a really good way to point out to this kind of thinker because it's a kind of thinker and it's an admirable kind of thinker who believes in rationality and reason and logic how dangerous reason and logic can be and how it can miss things that are difficult to measure but very important. If you don't have stats on something like happiness or making the other people around you content, then you'll measure things that aren't useful. And so the game is very logical. If you go, the job of men is to impregnate or put their sperm in as many women as possible. Right? You can make an argument for that, a rational argument for that. Then, you know, it, the easiest way to sleep with a woman is to make her feel insecure about herself. Uh, these are the tactics for doing that. And, you know, you can tick all these numbers and you get all these stats and I'm sleeping with one woman every night or three women every week or whatever it happens to be. My sperm is ignore, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, you ignore the obvious facts, the obvious facts that you are ruining people, you're making people miserable, Uh, you are creating in people contemptible qualities that mean your experience of all the people around you is always going to be focusing on and cultivating their weakness. So it'll give you a really unpleasant idea of how other people are. And even if you're looking at this from a purely evolutionary way, if you were living in a small community 400 years ago and you slept with every woman in that community, you would be dead. (laughs) <laughs> like you would have 20 angry fathers and brothers and the women would be talking and poisoning your stew. That is not how people work. Yeah. It's so, and it's so obvious from the outside that this logical framework has these massive chunks missing. Right. I, I loved what you said where you're like, you're missing key elements that are not measurable and you're not putting it into the equation. Because if you want to look at things logically, if you want to look at things using using logic and, and, and there are, there are immeasurables and those are put in 
by experiencing empathy, you know, by trying to understand what civilization's purpose is, you know, and civilization itself, of course, very, very slow, very inexorable, but tiny baby steps. And, um, but I think it's so, I was talking to a friend of mine today, uh, and he is a, a, a tall, manly white man, and he is a decent dude, right? He's, is a, a, white adult male who has his heart in the right place and for the most part is you know just like myself is trying to figure out what i've missed right in in the terms of institutional racism and in in the terms of of not seeing him not seeing sexism and stuff like that and we were talking about two male comics who are dumb and uh <laughs> super dumb they're dumb and they're using like their the powers there there's worse things to be said about them because they both are guys that were okay comics right they're perfectly good comics they did the job but they weren't exceptional and they and there are plenty of comics who weren't exceptional who went on to become famous who went on to become very very successful these two gentlemen did not they just continue to be middle management comics, right? Working the road, doing their job, filling the room, selling merch, um, taking pictures, you know, doing, they were fine. They were earning a living, but they wanted to be someone, which is some, one of the most dangerous things in the world is to want to be someone because that means you don't realize that you're already someone, <laughs> right? Just calm down. You're, 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 everyone around you loves you. You're already doing something. And if you, the purpose of your life is not to be someone, it's not to be anything. It's literally to, um, or if anything, I, I guess it is, it's to be of use to the yes. planet, to the universe, right? In my opinion, it's, it's not, if I work hard and I go to college and I do all of these things, I get these things. If I work hard and go to college and do, that's fine. Maybe I could be of use to the yes. rest of the world. That's the whole What's the point. point of all these measurables. Why, yeah. what, what, why are these measurables good and not the other measurables? There's all these right. hidden value judgments in that kind of rationalist view of the world that are ignored or invisible. Why is your why do, why is what you want to make more money and get more status rather than collect more bottle tops? Like, yeah. It's the same this thing. idea that it's all <laughs> rational, that science is rational rather than just what people happen to be interested in or talking about mm. is Bana it's silly. Yeah, it's bananas. But so he was telling me, I, I was telling him how exhausting, because both of these comics essentially want to be Rush Limbaugh now. They've taken their, their powers oh. that they learned uh, on stage, you know, their powers of of interaction with humanity and work in the room and they're using it to either um, elevate like conspiracy theories and to blow people and to make people angry and confused at all these things. They're taking advantage of dumb people uh, and, and taking and making money. And they're like, this is how I'm going to be famous. And I'm like, yeah, but then you're going to be a famous gross person. And why would you want to And So he was saying that uh, my, my buddy was saying how that, He's always known that one of these guys was just a bad comic because he used to steal jokes and stuff. And that's what made wow. him a bad guy. And I was like, yeah, is that, is that what made him a bad guy? I always knew he was a bad guy because I, he was always, uh, he got, 
he wouldn't get booked at clubs because he was hitting on the weight staff a little too hard. And, and he was kind of gross and he was a bit of an elbow squeezer. And just, he's one of those guys that I have said out loud to people, he's a nice enough guy. You just don't want to be alone with him. And yeah. you're like, yeah. dude, nope. Look, he wouldn't rape you if you asked him not to. <laughs> right. He would stop. If you, and you're like, <laughs> your fingers are jammed up my jeans. Get off of me. <laughs> and uh, you're like, okay, all right. I'm, I'm just kidding. I was just kidding. I just don't know. And you're like, oh, God, you're gross. Anyway. Can't so, blame me for trying. Can't yes, blame I me. Can. Yeah. Right. And that, but, you know, you look at like guys in the game, right? And, mm. and, and women, I mean, and women do this too. Everybody hits on other people. In, and it's sometimes manipulative. It isn't straightforward, right? Yes. Because like it's like when when someone says makes fun of you and or says something negative, that negging thing, where then then you're supposed to come back and go, no, like me, like me, and you're like, no, I don't know. And uh, and yeah, it's, it's a dialed trick. up version of things that are natural, which is testing each other and playing with each other and challenging each other and seeing if the chemistry is there and if you can trust them to, you know, catch you on. You know, that oh, right. wrestling of it, flirting is a natural and fun thing in the same way as if you get five people around a table and leave them for a week, they'll figure out how to play a card game or gamble with each other. It's when those things get dialed up and you don't have a clock in the casino and they have, you know, free drinks to keep you there. And they're like the game is just this quite natural thing, but just wrenched out of its normal yeah. format into something and unhealthy. And and it and it and it and it takes advantage of the fact that we all don't feel like we're enough on the inside. Whether you're mm. a dude working the neg thing, or whether you're a dude who's 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 a little too aggressive, or is like I was talking about one comic who was like would like circle women that he liked while making uh. fun of himself. It was uh. like this weird shy kind of what do you I know you know I'm probably you know you probably don't like me you probably don't and you're just like you're you're uncomfortable making but um but that's but what I love what I've always loved about online dating because I never dated until online dating because online dating is literally meet in a coffee shop look at each other would you ever want to make out with this and then you make that decision or that, right? You make that decision relatively quickly. And then if you say, yes, I would probably make out with that. And then you have a conversation and you're like, no, no I don't want to. I don't want much like the guy in the, in the car. It was so weird because that's what I love about online dating. That's how I met my husband because I would meet all these guys and it would be like, no, or they would be like, nah, or Sure. And then we would talk and they would say to me, no, or I would say no to them. I mean, it was incredibly honest and it was mm. something I needed to meet a dude who would marry me <laughs> or yes. I wanted to marry because it was someone who like I needed boxes. I'm very linear sometimes. And it's, yes. and it, uh, so I'm not really good with the flirting kind of thing or the games that are fun for some people and are all, in my opinion, have always been based on just insecurity. Like the way I would hit on guys, I was super aggressive. It was harassment and <laughs> it absolutely <laughs> never worked. Uh, I would occasionally get laid, but it was like, it was not, 
a way to meet human beings. It was not another yes. way to connect. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it, a lot of that stuff is is bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, or, or not optimal or, or not optimized for a, a modern world. I remember talking to my dad because one of the things that I will say often, particularly if I'm talking to a younger crowd of, of women, which I occasionally do, things for girls' schools and stuff, is it's important to say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no and maybe convince me when you mean mm -hmm. maybe convince me because mm -hmm. otherwise you're letting everybody else down. And dad said, you know, in my day, the thing was for girls to say, oh, no, 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 even when they meant yes. It was the form, it was the norm, it was the, the moral culture of the time, and girls would say no, no, even when they were pulling you towards them. There was this cultural mm. thing, but that yeah. it was very clearly understood. Right, it was a game of no. People. And when you said no with a wink, yes, it was and no that was with all... a wink as opposed to no, get the hell away from me. And the guy was ha was had to somehow navigate all that and go, is she saying no with a wink or is she saying really no? Which is good if you're a guy who has those structures and, and is very good in, uh, what do they call it, emotional intelligence, but not so good if you're a guy who doesn't have that equipment or, you know, didn't have a, a good family relationship where they learned these subtle signals. Anyway, so dad was like, it seems odd to me that this is the modern way of doing things because in my day you just knew. And I said, but in your day you were always making out with or hooking up with friends or friends of friends, people who you knew in the community that you knew. Mm -hmm. And so there were these checks and balances in place of friendship and accountability and reputation. And now you don't have that. In fact, it's, it's preferred to date outside your friend group because you might sleep with a guy and he sends a picture of your tits to all your friends, which is a thing that happens in a comedy scene all the time now among the younger generation. Ah, I'm so sure. glad I'm not in that scene. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they're just tits. Go online. Oh, my God. And so all of those mechanisms of accountability are gone, which means you don't, there's no room for that kind of subtle will we, won't we. Uh, yeah. So No so means yes means no means yes. You can't do that. You have to be blunt. Right, we have to. We, the 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 line has changed. The, yes. the we have to have actual consent. A perfect example is like a romance novel. Uh, the current romance novels. Uh, did you see that crazy Bridgerton? Yes, I did because I wrote my master's. Th uh, no, I wrote my undergraduate honors thesis on. Uh, guilty pleasures and narrative rhetoric in genre fiction, specifically romance novels, and why. People... Anyway, <laughs> anyway, that. sorry to that's nerd awesome. out on that. Um, oh, that's fine. I think I've... it's fantastic that something that's like you know they won't put um, romance novels on a lot of bestseller lists because they outsell other genres so Everywhere. massively, mm -hmm. and so the financial incentive is there. And yet, this thing, this Bridgerton thing, has not um, has not made it to television. And I'm always interested in when, like, all the financial incentives align but something isn't happening. That's where you have a bottleneck that's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not stupider than an action movie. It is nope. not stupider than James Bond. It is not <laughs> more objectifying or weird or, like, gendered anything or anything. Anything than The Hobbit, right? I mean, it's got – it's just as weird and just as either poorly written or well-written as yep. any other genre. Is, it's a, is it – any worse than some sad sack Oprah pick? No. As there's like the thing about romance novels. One of my favorite lines was somebody, one of the romance 
novel writers wrote a nonfiction book about romance novels. And uh, she went to college and she was going to do women's studies. And it was going to be literature, women's literature. And she went home and and her mom said, have you decided what you're going to study? And she goes, women's literature. And her mom said, you going to read romance novels? And she goes, those Fabio things? No. And her mom goes, so let me get this straight. You're not going to read any literature that has been written by women for women about women from the last hundred years. And she goes, Oh my God, just give me a syllabus mom. And her mom wrote a syllabus of different romance novels. And Georgette Haya. Sure. uh, He'll say is like, yeah. Yes. And so I read the Bridgerton novels. I read them, the Julia Quinn novels. And, um, and I thought it was, you know, there was a scene in it. I'm watching it with Andy. And Andy was like, God, being a woman sucked. And I said, yes, the word was chattel that you're looking for. And um, and he was he was like, what? And he is a very smart man. He has a full education, but he can't. He's in his own fish tank to this day, you know. And he's got me constantly splashing water in for my fish tank. So, but the thing is, is... In Bridgerton, the TV show, right, in the series, he he says, do you want to do this? And he asks for consent twice, which is very different. The hottest thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, but very different from Harlequin romances in the 70s where he would rape her and then they would fall in love, which was yes, a different... It was not. It was what they call a ravishment fantasy, which was that he could tell that she wanted it even when she thought she didn't. Right, right. And And that was was... the the, the fantasy. There was that someone would take responsibility for your desire out of your hands. Right, because we weren't we weren't allowed to have that responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And but the thing is, I like the fact that the books have changed to the point where it's almost a an absurd trope now. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. And now we do it. And then there's throbbing members and everybody's boobs are touched and there's some nubbins. It's all happening. Uh, <laughs> our lives. <laughs> the word nubbin is so nubbin. horrible to say out loud. It isn't okay. <laughs> but when you read it, you're like, oh, I see what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Yeah. I know where you're going there. Mm-hmm. P- puckering nubbin meat flange. <laughs> Things are clenching, you guys. Get in on it. Get in on it. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a, a great thing. Uh, we are. We are. This has happened. We've talked for a while, so we should wrap this up. But we should talk more about um, nerdy things like literature and, and women at some point because I had a great uh, a great time having you on, Jackie. You uh, so where much. can people find you online? Well, uh, my name is Jackie Cation, and Cation is spelled K-A-S-H-I-A-N. And if you go to JackieCation.com, and um, there's videos that you can watch me do stand-up comedy, there's my schedule, which is empty. Uh, Except for the fact that I do a lot of Zoom shows, so you might want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, at Jackie Cation. Um, And if you sign up for my email list at JackieCation.com, it is harder to get on the damn thing than to get off. But uh, you will get an email like once a week telling you what shows I'm doing. Every email has a scroll and unsubscribe 
I don't take it personally if you've had enough. So uh, feel free to join the email list if you want to know more. And my Twitter feed, the pin tweet, is a free hour of my stand-up because we are living in a dumpster fire. So live it up. That is uh, very generous and kind. And thank you for talking with me, uh, Jackie. Thanks Uh, for having me. Sweet.